On a sleepy Sunday morning in 1941, the Hawaiian island of Oahu couldn't have looked any more peaceful or idyllic. Even with the fairly recent arrival of the United States Pacific Fleet, which had deployed to the island from San Diego to their new main base at Pearl Harbor, only seemed to harbinger nothing more than a display of US naval prestige. Arranged off Ford Island in a line, were seven of America's mightiest battleships. This part of the harbor had become known appropriately as Battleship Row, and the sight of these seemingly invincible battleships must have convinced all that America's might was unquestionable. And yet, the sun was rising, literally and figuratively, shining a spotlight on a vast fleet of aircraft that buzzed through the morning sky and into history. This is the story of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Welcome to Wars of the World. As the 20th century dawned, the old empires of Europe still dominated the world, and while new burgeoning powers like Germany, the United States, and Japan were catching up industrially and militarily, there seemed little left of the globe for them to claim. Of all the world's powers, Japan was probably the most underestimated at the start of the 1900s. Certainly, it was a significant regional power in the Far East, but Western arrogance and racial prejudices often dismissed them as no serious threats to Europe's influence, especially in China, which often had to dance to the West's tune. However, that began to change after May 27, 1905. War had erupted between Japan and one of the oldest and grandest empires, that of Imperial Russia, and on the high seas, the stage was set for a crucial battle to determine naval superiority in the conflict. Most of the world's military leaders expected the Russian Navy to sweep away the impudent Japanese fleet. But to the surprise of everyone, the Japanese not only defeated the Russian fleet, but annihilated it, with only marginal losses on their side. The fallout from this victory had wide-reaching consequences that few truly appreciated in 1905, but would become apparent in the decades to come. For the first time in the modern era, an Asian empire had defeated a European one, which led to the damaging of Russian prestige and the weakening of its position in Europe, contributing to the outbreak of the First World War, and eventually the Russian Revolution. For the Japanese, however, the victory emboldened them, and born from the subsequent glory, the military took on a greater prominence in Japanese culture, invoking the old notions of the samurai and the way of the warrior. They continued their military buildup and embraced the latest military technologies, for it was technology that had allowed them to achieve superiority over the Russians. Newer Japanese warships were equal to, and sometimes better than that of their European counterparts, and when Japan supported the Allies in World War I, Japanese warships would enter the Mediterranean to do battle with Germany, where they both impressed and concerned European admirals. 
Japanese troops also fought successful campaigns against German possessions in Asia, only further cementing their position as one of the world's premier powers. However, once the war was over, Japan found that it still was not considered worthy of sitting at the top of the table. Furthermore, the world's powers imposed a series of arms limitations on every country, designed to prevent another world war. But these greatly favored Britain and the United States. At sea especially, Japan's navy was heavily restricted in terms of the number and size of ships it could build, compared to London and Washington, who argued that they needed larger numbers of ships, for they had larger empires that needed defense. By this time, the ball was already rolling in Japan, with ambitions of building a modern, grand Asian empire, with Japan at the very heart. The more militant factions in Japanese society were now eager to seize the opportunity that presented itself from the exhausted Europeans and Americans to strike outward without risk of them interfering unless challenged directly. The economic downturn experienced in the country in the late 1920s only furthered the militarists' calls for expansion to seize resources abroad such as oil and strategic metals, both of which Japan lacked significant indigenous supplies of. There were two prevailing mindsets on how this new empire would be forged. The first was known as the Northern Plan, and this called for an invasion of China through Manchuria and then into the Soviet Union where the Japanese army would capture oil-rich Siberia. This was favored by the army leadership, largely because as a land campaign, they could expect significant resources and funding from the government. They also viewed communism as one of the greatest threats to Japan and believed that the Western world, equally suspicious of communists, would most likely ignore the invasion or even support Japan directly. The counterplan, known as Nanshinron, instead viewed Southeast Asia and the numerous Pacific Islands as being in Japan's sphere of interest should they serve the empire. Favored by the Japanese Navy, this was a more problematic approach to empire building in the early 1930s, as this threatened to bring Japan into conflict with the European powers of Britain, France, and Holland, who all held possessions in this region, as well as the United States in the Philippines. Both policies were followed to varying degrees in the 1930s, although the Southern Plan was followed much more carefully than the Army's Northern Plan. Efforts in the South were instead made to peacefully increase Japan's influence, with the establishment of various Japanese companies, which built facilities for seemingly commercial uses, but had clear military potential in the future. Meanwhile, on the other side of the Sea of Japan, the Japanese Empire had already secured the island of Taiwan following the Sino-Japanese War of 1894 and had annexed the Korean Peninsula in 1910. They were now preparing to instigate the first part of the Northern Plan, occupying Manchuria in southeastern China, which would power the Empire's army and economy and give them a staging ground for their eventual war with the Soviet Union. However, they couldn't simply invade without some pretense, and so the Japanese concocted an attack on a railway line in Manchuria used by Japanese residents working there. Dubbed the Mukden Incident, a small bomb was detonated on the railway line by the Japanese on September 18, 1931, and blamed on Chinese terrorists. The bomb was so weak that the track was not even damaged, and trains continued using it in the immediate aftermath 
but the Japanese response was swift, and soon Japanese troops were landing in Manchuria to protect Japanese citizens from these terrorists. Despite holding a massive numerical advantage, the Chinese troops defending Manchuria were totally outclassed, and within six months, the region had fallen to Japan, becoming the puppet states of Manchukuo. International condemnation was swift, especially when the deceit regarding the bombing was proven by an investigation by the League of Nations. This led to Japan becoming something of a diplomatic pariah, but the League of Nations did little beyond filing protests with Tokyo. Prior to the invasion of Manchuria, China was in a state of civil war, as fighting had broken out between the nationalists and the communists. But with Japanese troops on Chinese soil, they decided to halt the fighting and instead focus on expelling Tokyo's troops. Fighting continued to take place in the months and then years after the railway line bombing. Initially, the Chinese received significant technical assistance from the Soviet Union, but soon this expanded to include aid from the United States, which, declaring itself a neutral party, also sold large amounts of scrap metal to Japan, who then recycled this scrap into the tools of war. As the fighting in China intensified, it was clear that the Japanese had both a technological and qualitative edge over the Chinese, particularly in the air. As such, the Chinese went looking around the world for former military pilots to train Chinese pilots how to fly the newer aircraft types they were receiving, particularly the American ones. One such pilot was Robert McCauley Short, who found himself demonstrating the Boeing 318 biplane fighter to the Chinese. But as he witnessed firsthand the Japanese brutality and the lack of action on part of the international community, in February of 1932, he decided to join the fight himself. On that day, he used his more advanced aircraft to attack three Japanese Navy fighters flying from the carrier Honsho over Shanghai. Despite damaging the flight leader, the three Japanese planes managed to escape the wrath of his guns as they turned back to their carrier. Back on the ground, the situation at that time was dire for the Chinese, and on February 22nd, the squadron Short was flying with was forced to relocate to an airfield in Nanking. Flying a faster type than the Chinese, Short elected to set out first on his own and head for the airfield. However, on the way, he spotted three Imperial Japanese Navy B-1M bombers. Short made a high-speed pass on the three aircraft, riddling the leader with gunfire, which sent his plane crashing to the earth. However, he was seemingly unaware of the nimble A-1N fighters that were escorting the bombers that swooped in behind him and mortally wounded his Boeing 318. Witnesses on the ground reported seeing the Boeing come down in flames and crash southeast of the city of Suzhou. Some reports claim that the Japanese pilots overflew the crash site and at least one of them saluted the dead American. While Short was acting as a private person and not on behalf of the US military, it can nevertheless be argued that he simultaneously became the first American pilot to shoot down a Japanese plane and in turn, the first casualty of combat between the US and Japan in the air. On May 22nd of 1933, Japanese and Chinese diplomats met to negotiate a ceasefire, and effectively handed over Manchuria and parts of northern China to Tokyo. A great prize indeed for the empire, but it had led to the Japanese withdrawing from the impotent League of Nations, who criticized them but did little else to interfere, even as the stories of Japanese brutality against Chinese prisoners and civilians was relayed around the world. 
There was sporadic fighting along the Chinese frontier in China in the years that followed, mostly conducted by anti-Japanese partisan forces, particularly those loyal to the Chinese communists. But then, on the night of July 7, 1937, Chinese and Japanese troops exchanged fire near the Marco Polo Bridge on the road to Beijing. The exact cause of the fighting is disputed, but likely began as a result of confusion mixed with high tension among the troops on both sides. Very quickly, the fighting erupted into a full-scale battle, and spurred on by this, Chinese troops conscripted by the Japanese turned on their new former masters and began killing Japanese soldiers and civilians, as well as burning Japanese properties. Enraged by the violence against Japanese civilians, Japanese troops were soon deployed from the home islands to suppress the mutineering Chinese, and the Second Sino-Japanese War broke out. The fighting that followed was almost medieval in its barbarism. The Japanese held nothing back, and civilians were not spared. With every town, village, and city captured by the Japanese, there followed an orgy of murder and rape, and none were more shocking than when the Japanese closed in on the Chinese capital, Nanking. The horror inflicted on the inhabitants of that city, which had swelled in number as it was flooded with refugees from the already occupied territories, is beyond description. From infants to the elderly, no one was spared, as Japanese commanders appeared to lose control of their men. In her book, entitled The Rape of Nanking, historian Iris Chang said, If one event can be held up as an example of the unmitigated evil lying just below the surface of unbridled military adventurism, that moment is the rape of Nanking. Given that the Western powers held various interests in China during the 1920s and 30s, they watched on with alarm as the situation in the country deteriorated with the outbreak of the Civil War, and then Japan's invasion of Manchuria. While adopting a mostly neutral stance in much of the fighting, they nevertheless felt the need to deploy some of their own forces to protect their interests. British troops, for example, fought several skirmishes with hostile troops, referred to as bandits, but were more often than not members of the Chinese communist forces opposed to their imperialist presence rather than outlaws. On the vital Yangtze River routes, both the Royal Navy and the United States Navy operated a force of river gunboats whose primary function was to protect the shipping from their respective countries that traversed the 3,900-mile stretch of water. It was a dangerous job with snipers from various factions often hiding along the banks of the river, hoping to pick off unsuspecting crew members up on deck. One member of the American Asiatic fleet engaged in this perilous work was the USS Penai, with 59 officers and men on board. Built in China in 1927, the vessel was heavily engaged in escort missions along the Yangtze into the 1930s, when shots being fired at the ship seemed to become a daily occurrence. Although, as one of the vessel's captains, Lieutenant Commander R.A. Dyer, once remarked, the Chinese appear to be rather poor marksmen, and the ship has, so far, not sustained any casualties in these engagements. In 1937, Japanese invasion of China changed the situation dramatically, and there was concern that roaming Japanese warplanes may mistake the warship for a Chinese vessel and attack. As such, the Panai began sailing with large American flags draped over the top of the vessel to identify it. 
In December of 1937, as the Japanese closed in on the doomed Chinese capital of Nanking, American and British gunboats, including the Panay, were deployed in an operation to evacuate their respective embassies. The Panay, along with a number of American embassy staff and civilians on board, formed up with three American merchant ships, and on December 12th, as the fighting intensified, moved upriver in an attempt to avoid getting caught in the crossfire. American authorities informed the Japanese of the vessel's presence in the region, but nevertheless, Japanese planes were ordered to attack any and all shipping on the Yangtze. The Panay and the accompanying merchant ships were attacked by Japanese Navy planes at approximately 1,327 hours local time. Two 130-pound bombs struck the American warship, which was also repeatedly strafed with machine gun fire from Japanese fighters. At 1,554 hours, the Panay sank, and in all, four men were killed, including the captain of one of the merchant ships, while many others were wounded before being rescued by the British gunboats HMS Ladybird and HMSB, and another American gunboat, the rather ominously named USS Oahu. The incident occurred almost exactly four years before Pearl Harbor would be attacked. Meanwhile, American missionaries recorded the horrors that they witnessed firsthand as men were tortured and murdered while women and young girls were raped and bayoneted en masse. Just how many were killed in the rape of Nanking is still a source of contention between the Chinese and Japanese authorities, with numbers varying from around 30,000 all the way up to nearly half a million. American businesses and property were not spared from the Japanese orgy of looting and arson, although following the Panay incident, Japanese commanders did start reeling in their men when it came to dealing with American officials. When the consul at the American embassy, John Moore Allison, was struck in the face by a Japanese soldier, the Japanese were quick to apologize. But from the American perspective, this was also a slap in America's face and fueled the growing feeling that left unchallenged, Japan would only expand further and further outwards, growing in power until it could one day possibly threaten the United States. After the Nanking Massacre and the attacks on foreign nationals, ships, and buildings, public opinion in Australia and the United States especially swung away from general indifference to a largely anti-Japanese stance regarding the Second Sino-Japanese War. Dock workers in Australia refused to load Japanese ships carrying materials used for war in China, while Chinese communities in the United States raised money for their people's war effort and made public their people's plight. However, once again, any protests fell on deaf ears in Tokyo, who didn't recognize anyone's authority other than the emperor's. Furthermore, they were already building warships in excess of the arms limitation treaties, much to the concern of the British and Dutch empires, who were at the time preoccupied with the growing threat emerging from Nazi Germany in Europe. Thanks to US neutrality, American companies were still able to profit from the war between China and Japan, selling weapons and supplies to both sides, even though its politicians and the public at large were appalled at Japanese brutality. On April 19, 1939, American economist and foreign policy researcher Maxwell S. Stewart told members of the American Congress that the US's neutrality in the war was an absolute farce, since it was the United States that was essentially powering the Japanese war machine. 
With Japanese bombers manufactured with American steel and fueled by American oil exports, the US people were soon having to accept a degree of culpability in the war. But with most Americans being of European descent, they tended to focus their interest on events in Europe. But voices continued to cry out in Congress in opposition to Japan. As for Japan itself, its army was now finally engaged in battle with the Soviet Union. Since the creation of Manchukuo, Soviet and Japanese forces had fought a series of skirmishes in an undeclared border war. But on May 11th, this began to spark into full-blown open warfare. Known in Japan as the Nomonhan Incident, the conflict would last until September 16, 1939, by which time the Japanese 6th Army had been decimated, losing at least 8,000 men. The Soviet Army had lost substantially more men in the fighting, but had achieved its primary strategic objective of maintaining the integrity of its border. The impact of this defeat was far-reaching with regards to Tokyo's foreign policy. It effectively heralded the death knell for the Northern Plan, for they knew that while their soldiers were superior to the Soviet soldiers, the Soviet Union could throw so many more against them than they could ever hope to match. This would lead to a rethinking of foreign policy, with Japan eventually agreeing to a neutrality pact with the Soviet Union in early 1941 to prevent any further hostilities. This left the Japanese army to focus on its war in China, while the navy prepared to implement the Southern Plan by force if necessary. In September of 1939, Europe was set ablaze by war with Nazi Germany, and by June of 1940, France and Holland had fallen, and their militaries largely defeated. This left their colonies open to Japanese expansion in the Pacific and Southeast Asia, with relatively little anyone could do about it. With Germany controlling France, and Tokyo and Berlin negotiating a formal alliance, on September 22, 1940, Japanese troops invaded the north of French Indochina, modern-day Vietnam. Their primary objective was to cut off supplies to the Chinese coming in via the port of Haiphong, and so they maintained their forces in the north of the country. Securing the region on the 26th of September, the next day Japan joined with Germany and Italy to form the Axis powers. These events sent shockwaves through London and Washington about what this could mean for the future. In anticipation of such an act, President Roosevelt ordered Admiral Husband E. Kimmel, the commander of the Pacific Fleet, to relocate his fleet's main base from San Diego to Pearl Harbor in Oahu, Hawaii, as a deterrence against Japanese aggression aimed at American interests. Again, the United States was struggling with its neutrality, with sympathies primarily being in opposition to Nazi Germany, and that opposition now being translated onto Japan via the new treaty. Diplomatic cables began being sent between all parties concerned, looking for assurances from Tokyo that Japan would not threaten allied interests in the region. But throughout the coming months, the situation only seemed to deteriorate. The US felt they were left with no choice but to begin imposing on Japan ever tighter embargoes on materials, such as aircraft parts and scrap metal exported by American companies. But while this hurt the Japanese war machine, they did not stop it, and in June of 1941, the Japanese army invaded the southern region of Indochina. Consequently, in July of 1941, the United States put an oil embargo on Japan, which forced Tokyo to begin eyeing up the oil-rich Dutch East Indies to replace the US oil it was no longer getting 
But anticipating this, US President Franklin D. Roosevelt warned that the United States would be prepared to take opposing steps should Japan launch further attacks in the region. He then made it clear that the United States were pushing for Japan to begin withdrawing from continental Asia, but this was totally unacceptable to the politically influential Japanese military. As proposals and counter-proposals were shared across the vastness of the Pacific Ocean by diplomats hoping to find a solution to this crisis, the Japanese military, expecting that the situation with the US would only continue to break down, were already exploring possible options for conducting war with America. Born on April 4th of 1884, Izoroku Yamamoto would graduate from the Imperial Japanese Naval Academy at 20 years old, initially specializing in naval gunnery, which was still the dominant factor in naval combat despite the introduction of newer weapons such as the torpedo and submarine. Serving with distinction at Tsushima, where he was wounded in action, he was soon climbing up the ranks and was earmarked for several notable overseas deployments to the then friendly country of the United States, studying at the prestigious Harvard University and the Japanese Embassy in Washington. His Japanese and American acquaintances frequently noted his fondness for gambling, and he was considered something of a shark at numerous games of chance from both the East and the West. Despite his somewhat conventional career thus far, in the early 1920s, he was one of the few world military leaders who truly grasped the potential of the military aircraft as a tool of war. The Japanese Navy's first aircraft was acquired in 1910, and in 1922, the Japanese Navy commissioned its first aircraft carrier, the Hosho. Yet, like in other navies around the world, naval aviation was still seen as merely a weapon of support to the battleships. Keen to push for greater innovation and investment in naval air power, in 1924, he switched his focus to this new branch of the Imperial Japanese Navy, serving first as head of aeronautics department before commanding the 1st Carrier Division. Aiding the development of Japan's carrier fleet were a group of British pilots and engineers under the Sempil mission. This was an officially sponsored British mission which looked to profit from Japan's aim to build a sizable carrier fleet for use in the Pacific on the grounds that Japan had been an ally in World War I, and that it was believed they could never truly match the Royal or US navies. Under the stewardship of Scottish peer Lord William Forbes Semple, the British assistance included the scale of combat aircraft which would go on to inspire Japanese manufacturers, kick-starting Japan's naval aircraft industry. However, this official assistance was short-lived, ending after 18 months, However, in that short time, a great deal of technical know-how had already been transferred to Japan. Yet, despite the ending of the mission, Lord Sempil continued to provide the Japanese with information on British military developments in contradiction to the official British Secrets Act. His activities were discovered, but his political connections allowed him to escape prosecution, and in the 1930s, he would continue to act on behalf of Japanese interests. Meanwhile, now an admiral, Yamamoto knew that carrier power alone in the 1930s would not be sufficient to build the powerful naval striking force he dreamed of, and so he commissioned a large fleet of twin-engined, land-based torpedo bombers to support them, 
until newer, more powerful carrier aircraft could be developed. By 1940, thanks to Sempil giving them the technical boost they needed and men like Yamamoto providing the doctrinal infrastructure, Japan had built up the most powerful naval aviation force in the world, comprising of six large fleet carriers, three smaller secondary carriers, and one training carrier. Supported by the immense land-based bomber forces, Japan was now in the position to challenge their increasingly hostile former allies. But Yamamoto was nowhere near as enthusiastic for war with the empires of Britain, France, Holland, and the United States, particularly while Japan was still fighting China. Yamamoto's intimate knowledge of the US made him the perfect man to plan a war against them. But this in turn also endowed him with the knowledge of the risk that was involved. Comparing the United States with his own country, he knew that the Americans had advantages both in terms of men and material on a one-to-one -one basis. The Americans' preoccupation with events in Europe, with Hitler's Germany, would alleviate some of this advantage initially, with US fleet deployments already favoring Atlantic operations. But once war with Japan began, much of the American Atlantic fleet would be redeployed against them. Then there would be America's mighty industrial complex, which, as well as being vast, did not rely as heavily on the import of strategic materials as Japan's did, and so would be more difficult to disrupt with submarines and aircraft. With all this in mind, he reasoned that immediately after the fighting began, Japan would have six months with which to sufficiently knock the United States out of the Pacific to such an extent as to force them to the negotiating table. There, they could be made to surrender control of the Pacific to Tokyo, giving Japan a free hand to create its empire, euphemistically called the Co-Prosperity Sphere, and become the dominant empire in Asia. He warned that if Japan wasn't victorious within six months, 12 at the very most, they would certainly lose the war, because that was how long he reasoned it would take the US to fully gear up for war, by which time Japan couldn't hope to match American war production. His rather pessimistic opinion was met with hostility from the more politically influential Japanese army, who were convinced of their country's superiority and fighting spirit. With the generals now pushing for war with the Western empires in Asia, he had little choice but to make his plans. He knew that the first attack would have to be decisive and give Japan room to expand outwards across the sea with as little opposition as possible for as long as possible. The Japanese Navy had already contemplated how a war with the US might play out, and most of their planning concerned a large-scale invasion of the US territory of the Philippines. From the Philippines, the United States were in prime position to threaten vital Japanese sea lanes and have a base from which to attack the expanding empire. A key component of any conflict would be for the American forces already stationed there to be quickly defeated, allowing the Japanese to fortify the island's chain and use it as a springboard from which to conduct operations against the US Navy once it had mobilized out of its main base at Pearl Harbor. However, this would, as Yamamoto believed, lead Japan to ultimate defeat, for it did not deal with the US Navy, and in particular, their own powerful battleships and aircraft carriers soon enough to be realistic. Not only would these be a threat throughout the Philippines campaign, but it would force Japan to wage a naval campaign to counter them, which would take time, time the Americans could use to gear up for war. Searching for alternatives, 
he began contemplating the somewhat radical idea of attacking Pearl Harbor in a preemptive strike. This would take out the US Navy main force in one swift blow. It was as he considered his options, he learned from reports from Japanese naval officers in Berlin and Rome of a battle between British and Italian forces that occurred on the night of November 11th, 1940. Using seemingly hopelessly obsolete fairy swordfish biplanes, the British Royal Navy had launched an air attack from the carrier HMS Illustrious against the bulk of the Italian surface fleet while it was moored at Taranto Harbour. The Italians believed that the harbour was too shallow for air-launched torpedoes to operate, and that any air attack would be spotted before it could inflict any significant damage. And yet, both of those beliefs were shattered in the night. While the air attack didn't destroy the Italian fleet, it was so heavily damaged that it was taken out of the fight in the Mediterranean for several months. This was precisely what Yamamoto hoped to achieve with the American fleet. And so rather than face the American Pacific Fleet in open warfare on the high seas, he instead pushed for a preemptive strike against them while they were still moored at Pearl Harbor in Hawaii. He envisioned a much larger attack than the one the British had conducted at Toronto, incorporating the Japanese Navy's six large fleet carriers and the latest naval fighters, bombers, and torpedo aircraft all working together to first destroy the American aircraft protecting the harbor and then obliterate the American battleships and carriers. Japan's generals were initially unconvinced of the plan. They wanted the carriers to support landings in Burma, Manila, and the Philippines, fearing that if so many of Japan's carriers, 60% of their total force, were discovered by the Americans and destroyed, either before or after they attacked Pearl Harbor, then they would lose the war on the spot. Yamamoto rebuffed their concerns, stating that if Japan didn't destroy the American fleet at Pearl Harbor first, then Japan was guaranteed to lose, regardless of any alternative war plan. In the end, Yamamoto won the argument, and the preparation for an attack on Pearl Harbor began. However, there were numerous obstacles in the way of Yamamoto's ambition. Like the harbor at Toronto, Pearl Harbor was located in a comparatively shallow stretch of water, which presented problems for the torpedo-carrying aircraft, who would bear the brunt of the effort against the American warships. Upon dropping a torpedo into the water from an aircraft, it would dive to a depth in excess of 100 feet before pulling up and leveling off. At Pearl Harbor, this meant that the torpedoes would nearly all get buried in the mud at the bottom of the harbor, which in places was just under 100 feet deep. So confident were the Americans that it was impossible for air-launched torpedoes to threaten the ships at the Pearl that they didn't even employ torpedo nets to protect their battleships. At Taranto, the British got around this problem by having their old biplanes flying extremely low and slow, thus reducing the depth at which the torpedo plunged after release. But this wasn't an option for the Japanese, with their more advanced monoplane torpedo bombers. Eventually, Japanese engineers came up with a cunning solution in the shape of wooden fixtures attached to the nose and tails of the torpedoes that would reduce the depth at which they dived after striking the water. The greatest obstacle in Yamamoto's plan had now been overcome, and the US Navy were oblivious to the threats the Japanese posed. Beginning in April of 1941, pilots of the Imperial Japanese Navy began practicing mock attacks against US ships. As these pilots practiced, they gained more experience, which could be then incorporated into their overall plan. 
To aid them, the Japanese admirals had a massive model of Pearl Harbor constructed, with which to finalize every detail of the plan for attack. But in order for it to be perfected, they needed intelligence. Enter Takeo Yoshikawa, a young Japanese naval officer who was dispatched to Oahu to spy on the American fleet. With no more access than an ordinary tourist, Yoshikawa was able to gather a remarkable amount of information on the fleet and the surrounding airfields protecting it just by watching them. With a high Japanese-American population on the island, he attracted little attention and would often sit in a tea house overlooking the harbor watching the activity, using his encyclopedic knowledge of American vessels to build up an intricate picture of the daily routine. Perhaps his most well-known activity was to pose as a tourist and hire a sightseeing plane to discreetly photograph the harbor from the air. This detailed information was then passed back to Tokyo, where it was incorporated into the final plans. Late in the planning stage, the use of two-man midget submarines would be included to assist the attack. The midget submarines would attempt to sneak into the harbor and launch their torpedoes at the US warships while their crews were too busy defending themselves against the attack from the air to notice them. The finalized plan would see six carriers sneak up to the north of Oahu and launch their aircraft in the early hours, taking the American base by surprise. Two waves of aircraft would be launched, each with their assigned targets to hit before they would return to their carriers, rearm and refuel and then launch a third wave to mop up the remaining ships and facilities, rendering Pearl Harbor completely unusable. However, some in the Japanese leadership wanted to go even further and invade Hawaii itself, believing that both it and the Philippines could be taken concurrently, but this part of the plan was ultimately cancelled. Even by early November, there were still hopes on both sides that war could somehow be averted at the last minute. On November 20th, the Japanese offered what they knew would be one final proposal that could avert war with the US and the British Empire. They offered to withdraw from Indochina and halt their expansion into Southeast China on the condition that the US lifted its crippling sanctions and supply one million gallons of aviation fuel. The US considered the offer unacceptable and issued a counter-demand that Japan had to unilaterally withdraw from mainland China. This was unthinkable to Tokyo, who now knew war was coming. Yamamoto, meanwhile, was already assembling his combined fleet of aircraft carriers, battleships, cruisers, destroyers, and submarines. It included two heavy cruisers, one light cruiser, two battleships, nine destroyers, eight tankers, 23 fleet submarines, and five midget subs. The key component of this fleet was, of course, the six fleet carriers and their aircraft under the command of Admiral Nagumo. Together, these six ships embarked a force of over 400 aircraft. Overseeing the operation from the battleship Nagato, Yamamoto ordered this, the most powerful carrier force in history, out to sea on November 26, 1941. As the diplomatic situation looked unresolvable, but the avid gambler knew that this, his first roll of the dice, would be the most crucial and potentially the most problematic. His whole plan relied on surprise, but surely, given the tension between Tokyo and Washington, 
the US would realize such a vast fleet of ships were missing and begin searching for them. Upon discovering them sailing towards Hawaii, the Americans could realize what was happening and deploy their fleets and aircraft to intercept. His fleet had 12,000 miles to cover, which would take him nearly two weeks, providing there were no delays. But that gave a passing US aircraft or ship ample time to spot them. The vastness of the Pacific Ocean did afford them some protection, but even then, Yamamoto was taking no chances, having the fleet sail under total radio silence, only receiving coded broadcasts from Japan, fearing any transmission from the fleet could be intercepted. Ahead of the main fleet, Japanese submarines scanned the oceans looking for marauding US ships sailing in their path. However, on the American side, the US intelligence network was far more concerned about the Philippines. They were intercepting large numbers of communication between Japanese units and official sources across Asia, although it was often uncertain what they meant. However, observers in the Far East had noticed Japanese warships deploying out to sea in the beginning of December, as the Japanese made their preparation for their Asian and Pacific Blitzkrieg. The US were therefore correctly anticipating the imminent Japanese attack on the Philippines, but had completely missed the part of the plan concerning an attack on Pearl Harbor. Less than 24 hours after Yamamoto's fleet had set sail, war warnings were issued to all US forces in the Pacific, but the measures the admirals and generals should take were not entirely clear. These war warnings were repeatedly issued over the coming days, which should have caused alarm, but as Admiral William Halsey, a man whose name would become synonymous with the Pacific theater in the months to come, put it, there were so many of them that after a while, people just became dulled to their impact and started to relax. Despite the belief that the Philippines was the Japanese's primary objective, Admiral Kimmel took what measures he could to guard the harbor, but it was not made any easier by the fact that his force of long-range maritime patrol aircraft had been repeatedly struck down in size as they were transferred to the Atlantic. He therefore lacked the aircraft to patrol the whole ocean around Oahu, and so instead, he concentrated their search efforts in the lanes in and out of the Pearl and the areas where his warships conducted training. His reasoning for this was that he anticipated attacks from Japanese submarines once hostilities broke out. But this, of course, only aided in Yamamoto's efforts to approach the island undetected. Further inland, meanwhile, US Army Lieutenant General Walter C. Short interpreted the warnings from Washington as being less about a military attack by Japan's forces and more about acts of sabotage from the local Japanese immigrant population. He therefore increased security measures at his airfields, including bunching the aircraft closer together so they would be easier to guard. These orders were met with a rather incredulous response from many of the soldiers carrying out these duties, who knew the Japanese immigrants Short were referring to and didn't believe they would ever be involved in sabotage or supporting the Japanese Empire against the United States. The disjointed army and naval responses to the war warnings highlighted a glaring problem in terms of defending Oahu from attack, being that there was no one person in overall command of US forces stationed there. This, coupled with an almost dismissive attitude that was being taken towards the warnings issued, their lack of clarity on what to do, and the general belief that the fighting would start in the Philippines, meant that a direct attack on Pearl Harbor was the last thing anyone expected, and as such, adequate measures that could have been taken to blunt a surprise attack 
were ignored. The Americans opened the door for Yamamoto's aircraft to attack. On December 2nd, 1941, from the Nagato moored in Hiroshima Bay, Yamamoto ordered a transmission to be sent to the attack force. It said, climb Mount Nitaka. This was the order given to conduct the attack on Pearl Harbor. From the outset, Yamamoto had emphasized that the key to victory would be eliminating the three US carriers in their Pacific fleet. These were the USS Enterprise, the USS Saratoga, and the USS Lexington. But being moving airstrips at a time of crisis, they became very active in the final days of peace, and the window for catching all of them at once seemed to be slipping from Nagumo's grasp. Saratoga was back in the US, undergoing a major refit, and so was certain not to be at Pearl Harbor on December 7th, which left Enterprise and Lexington. Enterprise was next to go, when on November 28th, it slipped out of Pearl with orders to ferry 12-gunman F-4F Wildcat fighters of the US Marine Corps to Wake Island. Then, just two days before the attack commenced, Lexington II was employed in delivering aircraft, this time to Midway Island. Thus, as the Japanese fleet approached, they were dismayed that the carriers would not be present. This was the whole idea of the attack, to knock these carriers out of the battle before they could lead America to victory. The Japanese had gambled everything to get here, and the most important targets were completely out of the firing line. Nevertheless, the attack was ordered to go ahead anyway. They could still inflict a powerful blow against the American fleet, which would only further weaken them in any future confrontation, where the three carriers could be destroyed using overwhelmingly superior Japanese numbers. On the evening of December 6th, 1941, in the last hours of peace, American codebreakers began intercepting a flood of coded transmissions across the Pacific. Unsure what it all meant, as they did not have the full picture yet, they expected the Japanese to attack Southeast Asia and the Philippines. But a warning to that end doesn't reach Pearl Harbor before the sun starts to rise over Oahu. Three hundred and forty-five hours. On the north of the island of Oahu, an alarm rings out inside the tents of Privates George E. Elliott Jr. and Joseph L. Luckard. But this is not a warning of any kind. Rather, it is the sound of the alarm clock rousing them to begin their duties at their radar station assembled on the north of the island. Their radar site is one of six mobile units comprising just four vehicles carrying the antennae, power generator, and support equipment that had been assembled around Oahu intended to give as wide a coverage as possible. Located some 532 feet above sea level at a site known as Opana, the two radar operators have an excellent view of the ocean for their SCR-270 radar antennae to scan for aircraft. The two men are working a 24-hour shift at the site, but only operate the radar in the morning between 0400 hours and 0700 hours, and even then, it is primarily for training purposes. The rest of the time they spend carrying out maintenance or guarding the site against vandals and snooping locals. Unlike the stereotypical image of a radar screen, with a circular dish and a beam traversing round and round like a searchlight, this early radar set instead employs an oscilloscope for display that produces spikes whenever an object is detected. It can only tell them something is there. 
It can't tell them who it is. 357 hours. Around the waters of Oahu, one of the few US warships at sea in the early hours is the Wix-class destroyer USS Ward, under the command of Lieutenant Commander William W. Outerbridge, who only assumed the captaincy of the ship two days before. Lookouts on the ward spot another warship, the minesweeper USS Condor, which begins signaling that they believe they had spotted a periscope in the water, and so Outerbridge orders his men to begin searching for a possible Japanese submarine. 600 hours. The first wave of Japanese planes begin taking off from their carriers under the leadership of Commander Mitsuo Fushida. It consists of 183 planes and comprises of three groups. Two of the groups have orders to attack the surrounding airfields around Pearl, allowing the primary group to go in and attack Battleship Row. According to the battleship USS Nevada, Ensign Joseph K. Tausig Jr. is awoken to take command of the forenoon watch. Being officer of the deck on a quiet Sunday morning in port is usually tedious, and so Tausig racked his brain looking for something to do. It then struck him that only one boiler had been lit to power the ship since they had entered Pearl, and therefore he decided to order another to be lit, if only to give him and the duty personnel something to do. 630 hours. Out at sea, another group of monoplane dive bombers are taking off from the deck of a carrier, but these are not Japanese aircraft, rather American. Sailing over 200 miles west of Pearl Harbor is the aircraft carrier USS Enterprise, and it is in the process of launching a formation of 18 Douglas SBD dive bombers. The Enterprise should have already entered Pearl Harbor, but a storm has delayed them by 24 hours. The SBDs have been ordered to conduct a patrol of the area before landing on Ford Island. 637 hours. Lookouts aboard the USS Ward sight another American ship, this time a US Navy supply ship, the Antares, sailing towards the entrance of Pearl, with a 500-ton barge in tow. The Antares is expecting to meet a tugboat that should relieve it of the barge, but when it fails to arrive on time, the Antares instead has to alter course to the east to keep the entrance to Pearl clear until the tug appears. However, as the ship turns, crew members notice a small white wake apparently trailing behind them. Realizing it is a periscope, the Antares quickly signals its location to the USS Ward, and sensing an attack, Outerbridge orders his crew to general quarters and moves to intercept the submarine. An orbiting PBY Catalina also swoops down on the scene, dropping smoke bombs to mark the target's location. The ward opens fire with its four-inch deck guns, before using its higher speed to overtake the sub and drop depth charges, which destroys the Japanese vessel, killing its two crew members. Outer Bridge immediately sends a coded transmission to Pearl Harbor, outlining the attack. But after delays decoding the message, it is presented to Admiral Kimmel, who demands verification that it is genuine and not a false alarm. 700 hours. Unaware of the drama that has unfolded out at sea, Privates Elliot and Lockhart are coming to the end of their watch and are looking forward to the arrival of the relief crew and breakfast. Elliot, who is new to their unit, has spent most of the time at the plotting table, where he would mark any tracks Lockhart spotted on a map before relaying the information back to headquarters, although there had been none thus far. While they wait for the truck that will carry them back to their base, the two men decide to get in some extra training as a way of killing some time. 
whereby Elliot will man the oscilloscope under Lockhart's guidance. Scanning the horizon, the oscilloscope only draws a flat line like it had for much of the morning, indicating that it isn't detecting anything. But then, suddenly and unexpectedly, it spikes. Examining the reading for himself, Lockhart is amazed at the size of the spike, which indicates to him a large number of aircraft, more than he has ever seen at one time. The men immediately contact Fort Shafter in Honolulu to report their findings, speaking to Private Joseph McDonald, who is looking for Lieutenant Kermit Tyler in the plotting room. Tyler dismisses the report as nothing, much to the incredulity of Lockhart. He insists they are detecting a large formation of aircraft approaching Oahu, and recognizing the concern in the young radar operator's voice, McDonald gets back to Tyler and insists he speaks directly to him. Lieutenant Tyler again tells Lockhart and Elliot to ignore the track because he knows they are expecting a group of B-17 Flying Fortress bombers to fly in from the US to Wheeler Field. Neither Lockhart, Elliot, nor McDonald are satisfied with this, but they have to follow the orders of their superior officer. Relieved of duty a few minutes later, McDonald returns to his tent with a grim expression on his face, and when asked what was wrong by a fellow soldier, he replies, The Japs are coming. 726 hours. The destroyer USS Helm casts off from its mooring to begin a day of routine maintenance work on the various buoys scattered in and around the harbor. 740 hours. Elliot and Lockhart lose contact with the formation of aircraft they had detected over half an hour earlier. A truck soon arrives to take them back to their main base, arriving just as the sound of explosions ring out over Oahu. 748 hours. Commander Mitsuo Fushida orders his men to begin their attack. As the men of the Pacific Fleet groggily awake, the harbor begins to buzz with the sound of aero engines. Even now, many of them are blissfully unaware of the imminent danger, attributing the aircraft to being either Navy or Army pilots conducting some early morning training. On ships like the USS Nevada, bands are playing as the morning flag hoisting ceremony gets underway. It's only as the first explosions begin to roar that they finally realize what is happening. The Japanese have caught the Americans at Pearl Harbor completely and totally by surprise. Battleship Roe bears the brunt of the initial attacks, with the USS Oklahoma being hit by two torpedoes that caused significant damage to the battleship's hull. A few minutes later, a third torpedo strikes the warship and nearly capsizes it. In the opening minutes of the attack, the USS West Virginia takes seven torpedo hits from modified Type 91 torpedoes, whilst almost simultaneously, the USS California takes two. Then the Japanese level bombers make their attacks. Some 10 Japanese bombers target the USS Arizona with modified 1,760-pound armor-piercing shells, which strike the ship to devastating effect. One of the bombs detonates near the ship's magazines, resulting in a powerful explosion that effectively cuts the ship in two. Nearby, the heavy cruiser USS Helena is hit by a torpedo after the attacking Japanese pilot mistook the vessel for Admiral Kimmel's flagship, the battleship Pennsylvania, in the low light. The blast from this hit damages the mine layer USS Oglala, which begins taking on water and efforts to stop the ship's sinking are thwarted by repeated strafing attacks by Japanese aircraft. Another cruiser, the USS Relay, also receives a torpedo hit and begins listing as it takes on water. 
Immediately, the US sailors scramble to their defensive positions and begin returning fire, claiming a handful of Japanese aircraft. However, the gunners in battleship row have a tough time aiming at the Japanese planes, because the warships are so closely packed together that there is a risk of spraying each other with bullets. On board many of the ships returning fire, ammunition supplies quickly run low, sometimes within minutes, leaving crew members scrambling to bring up new supplies from the ship's stores. As if all this were not enough, the American air opposition at Pearl Harbor is so low that Japanese Zero fighters take to strafing the defensive gunners with bullets. Further inland, as the first bombs began raining down on Pearl, the Army airfields at Barbers Point, Bellows, Hickam, and Wheeler come under attack. Bombs landing amongst the aircraft bunched up to protect them from local saboteurs, causing immense damage. At Wheeler Field, pilots like Lieutenant Phil Rasmussen are still wearing their pajamas as they pick up whatever weapons they can find to fire into the air at the Japanese planes. During a lull in the attack on the field, Rasmussen and his comrades assess the damage. Large numbers of their P-38 and P-40 fighters are burning, but miraculously, a handful have seemingly escaped undamaged, and so they hurriedly arm and fuel them before lifting off. Despite being heavily outnumbered, and with Rasmussen's own P-36 being less than a match for the Japanese Zero, and having a gun jammed, he still manages to bring down one of the Japanese fighters. In all, the pilots from Wheeler managed to bring down 11 Japanese planes, but this was only a drop in the ocean compared to the total force being brought against them. In the midst of the attack, the SBDs from the Enterprise arrive over Pearl Harbor and can't believe what they're seeing. Almost immediately, they are set upon not just by Japanese aircraft, but by American gunners who have trouble distinguishing them from the similar-looking Japanese carrier bombers, result in seven being shot down before they managed to land. Not long after, the B-17s Lieutenant Tyler was expecting to arrive are also fired upon by both Japanese pilots and American gunners. Many of the aircraft take damage, and with Hickam Field under heavy air attack, the bombers divert to nearby airfields. 817 hours. The destroyer USS Helm, which was set to undertake maintenance of the harbor's buoys, turns to leave the harbor as the attack continues. As the destroyer leaves the inlet for the open sea, where it can at least maneuver as it is attacked, a lookout spots an object snared on a nearby reef and soon identifies it as one of the two-man midget submarines. Turning to starboard, Helm opens fire on the midget submarine, but misses, and the small submersible soon escapes. However, it would not be gone for long, as it quickly snags on the reef again. Eventually, the two men on board will abandon the submarine, resulting in one of them drowning, and the other, Kazuzo Sakamaki, becoming the United States' first Japanese prisoner of war. 827 hours. The USS Monaghan, a destroyer, was ordered to head out to sea to assist the ward shortly before the attack began, and as such, came under attack as it got moving. Attempting to leave the harbor, it spots another of the midget submarines attempting to attack the fleet, and its captain orders full speed ahead in an attempt to ram it. Missing the submarine by just 50 yards, the destroyer then drops depth charges into the water that is so shallow, the resulting blast lifts its stern out of the water, damaging the steering mechanism. Out of control, the ship crashes into a barge, but only suffers minor damage. 830 hours. Aboard the destroyer USS Alwyn, 
The crew are scrambling to get the ship moving and away from the dock so as not to be a sitting duck. With much of the crew on shore leave, including all the senior officers, Alwyn begins steaming away with less than 50% of its regular crew on board, and with a young ensign, Stanley B. Kaplan, in command. Kaplan has barely been at sea for eight months, and now he is commanding a destroyer under heavy fire, attempting to escape the carnage. Shortly after the destroyer begins moving, lookouts spot the ship's captain boarding a motor launch with several other officers before attempting to reach them. But Kaplan is under orders from the commander of the destroyer force at Pearl to not stop or slow down, and he leaves the men behind. Gunners on his first command firing at Japanese planes above as he leads Alwyn out to sea. After nearly three quarters of an hour of almost continuous air attack, Battleship Row is left ablaze as the first wave of Japanese warplanes finish their attacks and head back to their carriers. But the second wave is not far behind. 840 hours. Despite having taken a torpedo hit that causes heavy flooding, the battleship USS Nevada is able to come up to power thanks to Ensign Taosig's decision to light another of the ship's boilers. What should have taken two hours to get moving only takes 40 minutes, and the mighty battleship breaks free of its moorings and is no longer a sitting duck for the Japanese. 854 hours. The second wave of attacks begin with a Japanese force consisting of 35 fighters, 78 dive bombers, and 54 high-altitude bombers. However, now the American forces are fully engaged and meet the second wave head-on. Most of the Japanese losses incurred on December 7th are amongst the second wave, who do not have the benefit of total surprise, and this does not go unnoticed by Admiral Nagumo. 950 hours. Defending itself from repeated attacks by Japanese dive bombers, the USS Nevada is attempting to make for the open sea when it's struck by five Japanese 250-kilogram bombs. The Japanese are making a determined effort to sink the battleship in the channel leading to Pearl, hoping that it would block entry and exit, further exacerbating the damage they have inflicted on American forces at Oahu. By themselves, these light bombs cause significant damage to the battleship, but not enough to sink it. However, they do start fires that are now as big a threat to its hard-pressed crew as the Japanese. 10 hundred hours. Their bombs, bullets, and torpedoes expended and low on fuel. The final Japanese pilots begin returning to their aircraft carriers, expecting to be loaded up to participate in the third wave of attacks. However, much to the dismay of many of them, Admiral Nagumo has cancelled the third wave of strikes. Nagumo reasoned that much of their objective, excluding the carriers, had already been achieved, and given that the Americans were now fully prepared for more attacks, he would be sacrificing many of his pilots and aircraft unnecessarily, which would weaken his force further, all of whom will be needed when the inevitable battle with the American carriers comes. Once all of his aircraft are recovered to the carrier decks, he orders the fleet to retreat. Of the 350 aircraft he has sent into battle that morning, 29 have been lost, a relatively small figure for the damage that has been inflicted. 1030 hours. Despite the Herculean efforts of the crew of the Nevada to escape Pearl Harbor, the fires caused by the bombs have prevented damage control teams from tackling the flooding, and fearing the battleship will sink, her crew are ordered to drive the ship onto shore on nearby Ford Island. With the help of a tug and a small minesweeper, the Nevada hits the shore at Hospital Point, 
and is no longer mobile. President Roosevelt was alerted of the events at Pearl Harbor soon after they began. Given the time difference between Oahu and Washington, it was the early afternoon when Secretary of the Navy Frank Knox burst into a meeting the president was having with one of his advisors, Harry Hopkins, to tell him the Japanese were attacking Pearl Harbor. Recounting that momentous day, First Lady Eleanor Roosevelt remembered that her husband presented a dead calm demeanor as he received the latest information from the scene but she knew deep down that he was incensed by the attack, given all that he had done to find a peaceful resolution to the crisis with Japan. Furthermore, it was the way in which Japan had begun this war that further incensed him and his cabinet. An insulting seven and a half hours after the bombs began raining down on Pearl Harbor, the Japanese delivered their declaration of war against the United States and Great Britain. Among those he conferred with regarding the attack was British Prime Minister Winston Churchill in London, who also found his country at war with Japan that day. Coinciding with the attack on Pearl Harbor, Japanese forces had attacked British Far Eastern possessions such as Hong Kong, leading to the Prime Minister uttering to Roosevelt, we are all in the same boat now. Assessing the situation and what the days ahead might entail, Roosevelt confided in Eleanor that he expected Germany to soon follow in their Japanese allies' footsteps and declare war on the United States. Almost repeating Yamamoto's own predictions, Roosevelt told her that the United States was in no way prepared to fight the war they were now embroiled in, and that it would take time to reorganize American industry from producing cars and refrigerators to making tanks and bombs. He therefore said to her that in his opinion, the country would, quote, have to take a good many defeats before we can have a victory. Armed with this knowledge, Eleanor Roosevelt went on the radio that night for her weekly scheduled program. To an audience of shocked, angry, and frightened listeners, she reassured them by stating, quote, whatever is asked of us, we shall accomplish it. We are the free and unconquerable people of the USA. While she was speaking to the American people in their homes, her husband was with his secretary, Grace Tully, dictating a speech he planned to give the next day to US Congress. In the evening, he and his cabinet met, where they discussed the latest reports from Pearl Harbor. The news was horrifying. Casualty reports were rising exponentially with every message from the scene, and with so many ships damaged or sunk at once, the US Navy's Pacific Fleet had been dealt a significant blow in the crucial opening round of the conflict. The saving grace was that the US carriers had miraculously all been spared. After a restless night's sleep, Roosevelt addressed Congress at 12.30 p.m. on December 8, 19... that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7th, 1941, 
a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. Within an hour, Congress had voted to reciprocate the declaration of war on Japan. The vote was almost unanimous, save for one lone voice, that of Jeanette Rankin, a Republican from Montana and the first woman to hold federal office in the US. Rankin voted against the declaration and refused to be pressured by the other representatives, even when they publicly booed and hissed at her from the gallery. Explaining her reasoning, she said, As a woman, I can't go to war, and I refuse to send anyone else. Back at Pearl Harbor, the carrier USS Enterprise sailed solemnly into Pearl Harbor on the afternoon of December 8th, where the crew saw firsthand the devastation they had only narrowly escaped themselves. The day before, they had launched an attack wave of planes after a possible sighting of the Japanese fleet, but found nothing, and now, eager to get revenge, or at least not be caught idle in a second attack on the Pearl, every man scrambled to refuel, rearm, and resupply the carrier so it could head back out to sea, as news of the invasion of the Philippines spread across the Pacific. For all who were there, and for all who weren't, across America and American possessions across the world, there was only one thing on their minds. Avenge Pearl Harbor. Two thousand three hundred and thirty-five US service personnel and sixty-eight civilians were killed in the attack on Pearl Harbor. A further one thousand one hundred and seventy-eight were wounded. The Japanese sank four battleships and seriously damaged four others, along with a number of cruisers and other supporting vessels, while some 390 aircraft were destroyed. And yet, the survival of the American carriers meant, ultimately, the attack would only buy Japan the six months Yamamoto predicted was needed to decisively defeat the Allies. This was something Japan would fail to do. At the Battle of Midway in June of 1942, Four of the carriers that attacked Pearl Harbor would be lost to American air power. It would be a defeat Japan would never recover from and would provide the catalyst for the eventual fall of the Japanese Empire in 1945. Pearl Harbor left an indelible impression on the United States after World War II, particularly as the Cold War began with the Soviet Union. The US constantly feared being caught off guard in another surprise attack but this time involving nuclear weapons, and so invested billions of dollars in early warning systems and intelligence-gathering technologies. They also instigated a massive rearmament program to confront the Soviets, so that, unlike on December 7, 1941, the US was always geared up to fight any war that might break out. But in an effort to prevent that from happening in the first place, the United States also adopted a much more aggressive foreign policy in countering the Soviets than it did with countering the Japanese in the 1930s. With all these wartime lessons having been learned, many historians have asked questions over whether or not the US should have been aware of an attack being underway. Was key evidence overlooked, or as some have suggested, deliberately ignored? Like many major events in history, Pearl Harbor has bred conspiracy theories, ranging from the plausible to the downright absurd, that nevertheless continue to be argued about to this very day. Specifically, whether Roosevelt knew the attack was going to happen, 
prior to December 7th. The only thing that can be said with certainty is that Pearl Harbor was more than just an attack on the United States. In a single stroke, it altered the course of world history, catapulting America into World War II and its position today. Probably the most influential and certainly most powerful nation on the face of the Earth.